All right, welcome again. Another edition of the Employment Law Show. Stan Fainselberg is your guy. You have got questions. He is the one to answer them. So you can call, yeah, or you can email help at employmentlawyer.ca. I'll give you the uh, the digs on another website you can use anytime. It's for uh, employment law information. There's contact on there as well, but a whole bunch of learning to be done on this website even before you make that phone call, including the severance pay calculator was wrapped up inside that sucker as well. You can check it out anytime, free, anonymous, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. And to reach out to Stan and his amazing crew, that he has with him, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Going to uh, talk about all kinds of things today. A bunch of emails we want to get through, and uh, we always kick it off. Stan, with the uh, the week that was, brother. What's going on with you? Have we got Stan? Am I missing Stan? Do we lose Stan? All right, we lost Stan. So again, the phone number anytime. Well, we're just waiting for Stan to come back. Stan's probably gone to get his coffee. But uh, 416-870-6400. 416-870-6400 is the way to call through this morning. And uh, you want something to say? You got something to ask Stan concerning maybe uh, your employment or if you're a boss or an employer, we cover those as well. Basically, everything we cover on the show is non-union based, but that's okay. You can call in with any other questions. And to reach out through email, I did mention we got a, a bunch coming through, help at employmentlawyer.ca. There's also, with the ongoing concern and questions about your job and temporary layoffs and how it affects your business, um, you want to go to covidrights.ca, covidrights.ca. That is a website that's also free. And uh, there you go. You can go there anytime you like. Have we got... Uh, have we got him yet? We haven't got him yet? Okay, you know what? We're going to take a short break. I don't want to overstep my boundaries. We'll take a quick break at Stand Back Up and Running and continue uh, with more Employment Law Show. Hang on. Okay, second uh, kick at the can here. Let's see if we can get this happening again. Stan Fanselberg is our guy. Sam Firu to Mark and the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. You can check that out. Reach out anytime, one 855 821-5900, help at employmentlawyer.ca is the email address. All right, let's stand, let's get into this. Hopefully you stick around for the duration, pal. What, uh, <laughs> what's uh, what's going on with the week that was? Absolutely. Good morning, John, and good morning, Ontario. Uh, wanting to get right into the week that was, and true to the segment, John, I want to actually talk about a piece of legislation that was brought forward on Monday uh, mm-hmm. called the Working for, Worker, uh, Working for Workers Act 2022, if that name sounds familiar to our listeners, uh, it's not to be mistaken with the Working for Workers Act 2021 that the government introduced last year. Clearly, they found some branding that they want to stick with. But in terms of this act, John, a lot of really interesting things packed into it. And I want to start off with what I think is probably the most interesting aspect of this legislation, which is a different piece of legislation within it called the Digital Platform Working Rights Act. Uh, and this is very similar to essentially the Employment Standards Act, but bringing it it to this concept of digital platforms. So what are digital platforms? They're pretty much exactly what you would think they are. You know, companies like Uber, Skip the Dishes, Lyft, uh, something that we at San Fierro have been battling with uh, for quite a while, as our listeners know, and and Heller and Uber is still an ongoing case, even though it's gone through the Supreme Court on one round. So in terms of this act, what it seeks to do, as I mentioned, is impose a lot of the same provisions that exist in the Employment Standards Act Mm. to this concept of digital workers or digital platform workers. And one of the most important provisions that it's introducing is the concept of a minimum wage for these operators. No longer will they be, you know, just living off whatever tips or whatever the platform provides them for if they are booked for calls there is a guaranteed minimum of $15 an hour, 
while they are working. And that $15 an hour, John, does not include tips or gratuities. It is the true $15 an hour minimum wage. Wow. Uh, yeah. As well, it actually prohibits the platforms themselves from withholding or deducting tips or gratuities unless allowed for in this act. And, you know, so similar to the Employment Standards Act, there's very few instances in which an employer can withhold your money, even if you owe them money, John, even if, you know, you've, you, you owe them uh, some sort of reimbursement for some sort of course you've taken that you promised to reimburse. They cannot withhold your wages as part of that reimbursement unless you've agreed to that in writing already. Uh, another really interesting aspect of this oh. is that it, uh, it gives operators the inherent right to access information to understand how their wages are being calculated, what tips wow. they're receiving, and all other, and to know what information these digital platforms are actually tracking of these operators while they're active. Probably that's pretty, one of the, oh, yeah, that's, that's huge news, man. Everything you just listed on that is really huge and welcome news, I would imagine, right? Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of really interesting aspects in this, you've probably heard another part of this bill is something that's been talked about a lot. And in a similar vein, it, it's the requirement that for any employer who has employees uh, to at least 25 employees to have a written policy on electronic monitoring. And this aspect applies to, is an amendment to the Employment Standards Act. The one I was just talking about applies to these digital platform operators. Right. The same essential provisions being introduced in the ESA to ensure that if your employer is monitoring you remotely, a lot of people who are drivers have GPS trackers that they're not aware of. All these things have to be told to the employee in writing so that they can understand exactly what the employer is doing and make a, you know, a conscious choice as to whether they want to engage in that process. Uh, because you know, notwithstanding the fact that this act does provide you know, the, for the provision that employers must have this policy, right. it does not in any way prohibit an employer from electronically monitoring an employee. Uh, and there is no reprisals or no enforcement mechanisms if you disagree with the way they're monitoring you. Because essentially, the remedy for mechanism here is if you disagree, you should go find an employer who doesn't do that and aligns more with your values. Wow. Uh, wow. One last aspect I want to talk about about the Digital Platform Workers uh, Rights Act specifically, and I think this is really huge, uh, is that it provides for a minimum of two weeks written notice if they're going to kick you off their platform. No longer can you just you know, sign in and find that you can't work and all of a sudden you're left scrambling unsure what to do financially or, or any other way really. Now you're gonna have at least a two week cushion. Now, to be clear, this does not apply if you are kicked off for misconduct. You know, it, yeah. cause is still cause, you cannot engage in misconduct and still have the safety provisions of this act. But even giving this two-week cushion to people, I think, is pretty big, considering that before, you know, like many contractors or people were often mischaracterized as contractors in Ontario, they find that one simple disagreement with their employer can lead to a complete cutoff of income. It's uh, so, fascinating stuff. And again, at any time you want to reach out to Stan for details, because mm -hmm. this is this is going to cover a whole swath of people in this province for sure and beyond. Uh, one eight five five. Eight two one fifty nine hundred. Want to get to a, a call here before we uh, we take a break, but that's not for a bit. So we got some time. Jim, thanks for uh, for standing by. How are you? Great, great. Um, Good. 
I am an employer. I'm an employer. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody else has seen costs rise. Uh, last year, we raised our prices 17 to 20%. Um, our salespeople are on uh, primarily on straight commission. So they've had to sell it for higher product or for a higher price. Um, and then the installers, they also are paid on uh, dollar volume that they install. Mm-hmm. So, example on the installer side, they they got quite a quite a big pay increase last year, and we have to put another increase in our prices real soon. Um, that thing we need to pass along to them, or example, if they were making ten percent for an install fee last year, we make it say now nine and three quarters because we've raised the prices and. Basically, so they get the same amount for the same install. Do I have to pay them that same increase? I hear you, Jim. So with the commission structure, just like any other compensation, what you have to really be concerned about here is whether their income is decreasing. You don't have to provide for an increase. But if you do end up decreasing their income, that can uh, essentially amount to a constructive dismissal. But here, if you're saying that essentially their income is tied to the price of the product and as the price of the product rises, their income rises, you can put in place certain uh, provisions to ensure that, you know, that maybe they get capped at a certain point, for example. You know, as long as you're ensuring that the income, you know, wh- whatever happened last year, Jim, at this point, you've kind of, it's a sunk cost. You have to live with that. You've condoned that their incomes right. have now risen to this level and to now try to go back on that would likely amount to a constructive dismissal. But in terms of the future and any future price increases, you can certainly put in uh, in place certain provisions into the contract, certain terms that say, hey, you know, you are going to be capped at this amount because these purpose of these price increases are to account for the costs of inflation and the costs of our operating uh, expenses and not necessarily, you know, wait to provide for a greater increase in your wages. I think if you do it that way, Again, as long as their overall income doesn't decrease, that can't be a constructive dismissal. They're making the same amount of money. Okay. So is that would that also go for salespeople? Because if they sold something last year for $1,000 and now they have to sell it for $1,200, should it be done the exact same way? Yeah. Again, I mean, I, I, as long as you, they're not overall compensation is not being decreased, then it's, it shouldn't be an issue. Now, the other, you know, one issue that often happens, obviously, is when you increase prices, you may find that you have less people buying the product, which could inherently lead to a decrease in, in their compensation. And that's why I think that if, they, if you're tying, let's say, their compensation to the price of the product, but just capping it, you're not really changing the terms so much as just creating a ceiling as to how much they can earn. And as long as that ceiling aligns with their previous earnings and, again, doesn't lead to a decrease necessarily, if the, the ebb and flow of sales, obviously, there's always going to be ups and downs, and that's to be expected. Okay. What if there's – I wanted to make radical changes, just to say. Um, yeah. Say somebody's been with me for five years. Yep. I tell them, hey, uh, Bob, in six months' time, we're going to be off- – contract and giving him lots of notice i'm going to say yeah um this will be the new rate so is there is there a formula like it should be to be safe on my side to be one month per year that i have to give him notice that hey as of uh he's been with me five years i'm going to say six months time your 
your compensation is going to be X? Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, I think a month per year is not, not an unreasonable, you know, kind of shorthand way to do it. Um, obviously, if you want to be a little bit overly cautious, you can increase that amount. Just think of it as, you know, the more senior a person, the more that amount should probably increase. But otherwise, a month per year is, you know, a reasonable starting point. And the other thing I would mention just about this, uh, the way you're going to go about doing it, to, to have it be effective, you have to say not only is the change going to happen in six months, but also say that if they choose not to agree to the change, that they should consider the next six months to be working notice of their termination. Because that's what makes it effective working notice. You just say, I'm going to change this in six months. And they say, we don't agree. Six months comes and said, well, I never agreed to it. So now you, you know, this is a termination, it's a constructive dismissal. But if you give them working notice and you explicitly say to them, hey, you're, if you don't accept this, that's your last day. You're done. It's a termination. They can't get around that. That actually ensures that that six-month period that you've given them in terms of notice will count towards their entitlements. Jim, appreciate the call. we got to run, get another call. You can reach out to uh, Stan as well and his team anytime to have a further conversation about this or anything else, really, for uh, for yourself. one 821 5900 would be the way. Get on to, uh, to Michael. Hey, Michael, thanks for standing by. How are you? I'm good, gentlemen. I love the show. Good. Thanks, mate. What's, uh, what's on your mind? <laughs> so my questions are for Stan. So Stan, my, uh, I'm calling on behalf of my wife. Um, <laughs> she recently received a termination notice this week. Um, she is currently on mat leave. Um, okay. Basically, from what I understand, the company is going through some restructuring. Uh, but my question to you is, uh, how much notice uh, is she you know, is she is the company supposed to give her before serving her termination? Um, based off her many years of employment there, what should she be entitled to in severance? And yeah. you know, can they actually do that? She's on that leave. Can they serve notice? Are there any special conditions on that? Okay. Well, so let's start with the first question in terms of her entitlements. And her entitlements will depend on two things. Number one, does she have a contract that limits how much money she's owed? If she has a contract, and if it's an enforceable contract, then her entitlements will be dictated by whatever the contract says. Uh, as we, you know, as our listeners know, contracts are not all that enforceable these days in Ontario, so they're often easy to get around. In which case, you know, her entitlements will be based on what's called the common law. Hmm. Under the common law, we look at several factors: factors like age, position, length of employment, and, and one in your wife's particular instance, one that's going to be very important is the ability to find new employment in the future. Because obviously having been on mat leave right now, and I don't know how long that's going to continue in the future, but if it, that's going to have to be accounted for because she's not going to be able to look for work for quite some time, presumably. Uh, and there is case law that supports the idea that if you do terminate an employee, whether just before a mat leave or on mat leave, that can extend the notice period because presumably as an employer, when you do that, you understand that it's going to be harder for this person to find their next job. And if you don't understand it, you really probably should. Um, in terms of your last question, that one is very factually specific. You know, of course, they cannot terminate your wife if the termination is in any way, even 1% tainted by this idea that of, of her maternity leave or pregnancy. You know, if she's on the chopping block because she's on that leave in any way, again, that's a human rights violation. 
The problem often becomes when you have a restructuring, and most companies you know, they don't come out and say, we let you go because if you're on that leave, they call it restructuring or something like that. It's getting to the true reasoning behind it, because oftentimes, if it is a real restructuring, if they truly have eliminated your wife's position as part of a, a large restructuring where lots of people lost their jobs, then that's okay. You know, the, they, they can terminate your wife while she's on that leave. They just cannot terminate her because she's on that leave. Okay, understood. So, I mean, if you want to tell me what your wife's factors are, I, mean, I can give you a much better idea in terms of what her entitlements would be. Um, if, if you just give me your age, position, and length of employment, really. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll reach out to you because I, I don't want to give out too much information in case sure. you're maybe uh, listening. Understood. Bruce. Yeah, oh, yeah, appreciate it. Uh, appreciate that, Mike. And here's how you do that. You probably know already because you sound like you've listened and uh, you know what you're talking about. But one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred again. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. It's uh, just about that time. So before I get into an email, let's take a, a quick break. We'll get right back into it and uh, we'll continue with your emails again. We're going to help at employmentlawyer.ca. Lots more coming up. Employment Law Show. Stick around. Alrighty, welcome back. Employment Law Show. Got uh, plenty of time to talk to you, so let's uh, let's keep it going. Stan Fanselberg Partners, Sam Firu Tamarkin is uh, once again handling all of your uh, questions and queries. The most positively reviewed law firm in the land from coast to coast to coast. So rest assured you'll get some answers and you'll be in, uh, in fine hands indeed. Thanks for standing by, Frank. How are you? Good morning. Good, good. Thank you. Good. What's up? The question I have is I... I have a temp agency, and I and I have a friend of mine just called me this week, and uh, I said he has the same thing, that the labor is in court with the labor uh, board, the reason being because he's paying a few of the people or a lot of people as a contractors, and as a contractors, uh, the, lab, the labor board is telling him that he has to hire the people. Mm -hmm. If I hire people as a contractors, because I don't have enough work to give them like a, a whole full 40 hours because I don't have it, given, given of COVID, I had mm -hmm. it before, but right now with COVID, it's a lot of restrictions, so I don't have it. So what should I do before I get into trouble? Okay, Frank. So I, I think you're, you've kind of jumbled a couple of different concepts here because you know, you're it seems to me that you're saying if a person doesn't work 40 hours, they are a contractor in your view. And that's really not how you know this distinction works. Um, you can be a part-time employee. You can work 20 hours and be an employee. Uh, you could be a full-time contractor and work 40 hours as a contractor. At the end of the day, this is a very factually driven exercise to determine whether the person you have is an actual employee or an actual contractor. Um, you know, it comes down to how much control do you have over them? How much, you know, how much right do they have to work somewhere else or to earn a living somewhere else or to, you know, to potentially risk, make more profit or risk losses? Uh, who, owns, who owns the equipment? Who owns the clients? Those are all the factors that we look at to determine is somebody an employee or a contractor. We don't look at, you know, even a piece of paper that what it says. We don't look at how many hours they're working. We look at the situation between and the relationship specifically. 
And, and you know, to get to your point, Frank, like if your concerns are that you don't want to hire employees because then you have certain obligations to them and you may not have the work to line them up, you can do fixed-term contracts for employees so that they know that at the end of that contract, you know, their job is done, their obligations to them are done, and you don't have to worry about the ministry coming in and assessing whether you have true employees or contractors. Yes, the thing you? is, though, yeah, mm -hmm. they're asking me, I wanted to put them on the payroll, some of them, even though mm -hmm. they work in construction, they work in the 40 hours, they prefer working, they prefer working as a contractor, and reason being yes. because you, you probably know how it works. If I hire the person, I know I have to pay CPPI mm -hmm. and all this other stuff, mm -hmm. WSRB and, and all this stuff, right? But if they know that too, that if they work as a contractor, first of all, they get more money because mm -hmm. they are absent of the HST. They don't pay taxes and they don't pay HST. So there is more money in their pocket. And that is why, I mean, if somebody is asking me, I don't want to get paid with a sin. I want to get paid as a, as a uh, I call a sole proprietor. That's what I yeah. put on the check. The person so is a sole proprietor means, yeah, they all, they, it, it, it's a, so it, it is a company, but under, we use his name and he's mm -hmm. a solo owner. So yeah, Frank, I mean, uh, you actually hit on a very important issue that I deal with on my employer's client side all the time. Um, you know, a lot of them, we always think of employment as being this huge benefit to employees and in a lot of ways it is. At the same time, being a contractor has its own benefits to, you know, mischaracterized employees such that they can write off a lot of their expenses and lower the potential income threshold and their tax obligation as a result. So oftentimes, right. you know, oftentimes, like you right. say, people prefer to be contractors until, you know, until they don't prefer to be contractors. When they get terminated, they generally prefer to be employees. You know, and I've seen this play out specifically in the trucking industry because truck, trucking, as I imagine in your industry, there is a lot of work and not enough employees for people to work. And because they have, the workers have more leverage there, they have the leverage to come to you and say, hey, if you're not going to give me what I want, I'll go work at this employment agency because they will. And it does put you in a very difficult position because, you know, it sounds like you want to characterize them properly, but you may not be able to because you can't find the workforce to do it. Well, you probably know with, with this, with this COVID, I mean, I, mm -hmm. make, I make us a profit half of what I used mm -hmm. to make. I labor, labor force is very restrict. We don't have any labor. I have, I have mm -hmm. job openings and I, I'm afraid to go and approach a company that I will provide them with workers when I'm afraid that I, I cannot get it because these days it's very hard to get. It's, and I, I, and I think we've I seen that in rising. I work mainly in hotels and there's mm -hmm. days that they want to work four hours. There is days that they want to, they want the people to work six hours, but mainly during the week, there is no much work. The weekend, the work comes on the weekend. I cannot offer these people a full-time job. I, you know, I, I, my things that I, I try to keep them as, you know, as happy as I can, but you always find a better apple that it works one, two days and takes off. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And I have, and, and, and I'm on the hook, you know, uh, there's a lot of times they they're talking about low and low and low. There's a lot of times you know that um, that this guy's supposed to go to work and all of a mm -hmm. sudden uh, he's calling me an hour before the, 
the work, the shift is, and I, <laughs> oh, I'm not going to work. I, I, I don't feel good. I end up right. going to work. I'm a seventy. I'm a seven year old guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not to lose the contract, not to lose the, you know, the, the, the client. Well, I mean, it sounds like what you're talking about is just the frustrations of being a business operator, uh, which I totally understand. And I mean, especially in an industry like yours, where people obviously are very transient, they can move around. There's a lot of employment agency work and a lot of uh, people jumping around. And we all also dealing with a situation where there is rising wage inflation uh, and people have more options and there's a very hot labor market. So. I think that's what you're talking about is just frankly the reality of the economy as it stands today because that may not have been true two years ago as you said pre-pandemic i'm sure a lot of these issues were not necessarily around because uh, at that time you know there was not enough work necessarily for everyone and there was more uh more ability to get labor but uh, from what you're saying to me i mean it really comes down to just the the issues that you have to deal with in your industry as a business operator Right? And you're going to have to make some tough decisions to decide, you know, are you going to agree with their characterization in this instance as contractors as sole proprietors? And frankly, if you do, I would tell you just to keep in the back of your mind the fact that if you've let them go, there's a good chance that you're going to hear from a lawyer kind of like me uh, who's saying they're not contractors and then you owe them money. And you have to factor that in, you know, when you, when you hire them and also just think about getting some contracts together and sign because a lot of liability whether they're contractors or employees can frankly be uh can, can be dealt with by way of these contracts to ensure you have some certainty frank appreciate the call and if you want to carry on afterwards you could do so at a later time when the when the show is over that's a one 821 5900 email I want to get to a bunch of these stan Again, help at employmentlawyer.ca is the way you reach out anytime. First one is from Roger. Says, uh, hey, Stan, how can my employer ask me for information about my vaccine status, or is this considered private medical information? It's a great question, John, because I think from a legal perspective, there's a couple, at least two two thoughts that I have. You know, on the one hand, I think it, it very is clearly med- private medical information. And I, what I've seen a lot of employers do you know, after they initially, a lot of these policies came into effect in September, and a lot of times when they were asking employees, it was a simple yes or no. Are you, do you have, uh, are you, are you vaccinated? Yes or no? You know, after the, the, probably the first three weeks to a month, the, those questions were, were revised to include an option to say, I don't want to disclose. And I think a lot of employers did that because they recognized that it is private medical information and you don't have an obligation to disclose that. Now, obviously, a lot of these policies also say that if you don't disclose, we'll just assume you don't have your vaccine and treat you that way. But it does, you know, give you that opportunity to say, I'm not disclosing this information and potentially overcome some of these privacy concerns. The second thought I have is that, I mean, obviously the government has come out and said that this is information that is important for employers to know. Uh, the Human Rights Commission, which is the policy branch of the Human Rights Tribunal, which administers the Human Rights Code, uh, preemptively came out in September, frankly, with just a policy statement that said, you know, we do not consider this as a general proposition to be a violation of a person's human rights to ask these questions. So I think the practical reality is that it's probably not because the authorities have essentially come out and said it's not a violation of, uh, you know, any sort of medical information or statutes and keep in mind these are statutes that the government can always amend if they want to uh, to to create you know carve outs for something like this uh, 
ultimately, Roger, what I would tell you is that you know, mostly it seems that most authorities have taken the position that this is information that employers are privy to. Um, they cannot do anything with it other than to use it for internal purposes. Keep in mind they can't disclose it to third parties or try to you know sell that data in any way. Uh, but they are allowed to know because knowing allows them to uh, ensure a safe workplace and to tailor the workplace to, to meet its obligations under other statutes. Let me get to uh, Lana here quickly. We got a couple minutes before we break, Stan. We're going to keep with the uh, the vaccine theme. Lana says, uh, "Can I take legal action against my employer if they force me to get the vaccine and I have an adverse reaction?" Yeah. Um very complicated question in a lot of ways, uh, but ultimately I think the answer is going to be no, you can't take legal action against your employer uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, number one is they're following the public health authorities who all have all come out and said that this is safe vaccine uh, that should be administered. It's been passed obviously by all public health authorities. The second reason I would generally say is that it's, you know, the manufacturers are the point of liability here. If the vaccine has an adverse reaction, it's potentially the manufacturers who are liable. And, and you know, if we go back a mil what feels like a million years to 2021, mm. uh, there were a lot of discussions about putting in liability waivers, both in the United States and in Canada, for vaccine manufacturers and for employers in general as well, to address some of these concerns. Now, those, as far as I'm aware, no, those did not actually come into effect. So there are no liability waivers either for employers or vaccine uh, producers. But I think that ultimately the point of, you know, if there is an adverse reaction is related to the product, not the right. policy. Yeah, and then right. the third reason I would say that that's unlikely is that any adverse reaction you have, any damages you have, are going to be remedied in some way by our healthcare system. You know, you're not gonna be incurring hundreds of thousands of dollars in bills because you have an adverse reaction because we have public health care and they will treat you for free. So you will not be able to essentially claim those damages from your employer. And really what that leaves in terms of liability, even to the extent that there is any, it is things that like exemplary damages, like punitive damages, whether what they've done is bad faith and should be you know punished for things like that. And those are very hard to get to. Um, courts are loath to get, you know, grant those types of damages except for the most extreme situations. And my general take on, you know, the, these policies in the sense is that I think, I think these policies are wrong. I don't think that they amount to cause and I don't think that you can put a person on unpaid leave uh, just by introducing this policy in the middle of an employment relationship. But I don't think courts are going to go out of their way to punish employers either. You know, they're going to see this as, you know, people uncertain what to do. Very little guidance, unfortunately, from the governments in that respect. They've been very wishy-washy as to what they believe in terms of these policies and what the effects of the policies should be. And they, frankly, I think, left the employers out to dry in that sense. And that's why they're in this situation where I feel they've been left with a lot of liability. Um, so, yeah, I mean, unfortunately for Lana, I don't think that she would be able to take action against anyone. But luckily, that's also because we have a safety net that will ensure that she has the health care provisions she needs Got if it. that does happen. Got it. We'll take a short break, Stan. Mm -hmm. Lots more to go. Email address help at employmentlawyer.ca. That's what we use. We'll continue. This is the Employment Law Show.
Partner Stan Fainselberg is the guy doing all the heavy lifting here on the show today, reaching out after the show. Anytime, one 821 5900 email address we always use as well. You can use that help at employmentlawyer.ca and the website pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Free and anonymous, chock full of employment law knowledge there as well. In fact, go there even before you uh, you make that phone call to Stan. But moving on to another email, let's uh, skip down to Albert. Albert says, hey, guys, have been uh, with the company for seven months, have missed approximately two months of work. Most of the absences were because of medical issues. And the others I advised the company about prior to taking time off, and they didn't say anything. Now the company is taking the position, I've been terminated for excessive absenteeism. Is this legal? I would generally say, from what Albert describes here, that that's not legal. I mean, you know, obviously, if he's missing work because of health issues, and those are substantiated health issues, uh, terminating a person for excessive absenteeism in that situation amounts to a violation of their human rights on the basis of disability. Yeah. Assu- assuming, obviously, the, the health issue itself arises to the level of a disability, which is not a super high level to begin with. But, you know, what should be fairly clear here, I think, to most reasonable people, John, is that can't terminate a person because they miss work, work because they're sick. You know, that's just common sense. That's just reasonableness. And, and I'm surprised and I'm frankly shocked that an employer would try. Yeah. Howard, you're up next. Again, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Can my employer make me work on a Saturday for free to make up for the fact that I got paid for a statutory holiday? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I, crazy things we hear from employees it's all great. the time, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, again, Common sense would dictate that that the answer is clearly no. You know, the purpose of a statutory holiday is to give people a break and to pay them for that day, not to make them make it up on some other day for free. Uh, I would definitely say that's a violation of various provisions of the Employment Standards Act. And if they took that action against you, you know, you could file complaints with the Ministry of Labor. If they terminate you, that would almost certainly be a reprisal. And yeah. there are serious consequences for a reprisal under the ESA, including being reinstated with full back pay for the time that you were off. We're going to move on to Rebecca. Again, you want to reach out anytime by phone when we're not doing the show. one 821 5900 to reach Stan and his, uh, and his crew. Rebecca, oh, let's get back to vaccine. She goes, I work for a large retailer that is implementing a vaccine mandate. My issue is that none of the... Uh, my issue is that not of the customers who come into the store need to be vaccinated, but I'm being threatened with the uh, loss of my job if I'm not vaccinated. Can my employer do this? Yeah, this is what we were talking about, John. Yeah. And I've said on this show multiple times that these policies have to make sense. They're ha- they have to be taken in context, not in a vacuum. You know, it, this is about ensuring you know that Rebecca's workplace in this instance is safe. And, and I personally don't understand how anyone can argue that a situation where Rebecca is vaccinated, but the person right next to her is unvaccinated, that's a safe workplace. But Rebecca is unvaccinated, the person right next to her is unvaccinated, that's an unsafe workplace. Now, again, that makes no sense. Yeah. And I think most people would agree with that perspective. And that's why I feel a lot of these policies will be struck down because of you know just factual inconsistencies like that. Uh, who's up next? Fang. Fang is up next. He says, I have been terminated and the company has offered me one week for each year I was there. There's a typical story. Is that fair? It's 
very unlikely to be fair. Thing. You know, that one week per year is almost certainly representing the minimum amount that they owe you under the statute. And again, unless you have a contract that spe specifies that you are entitled to only the minimum, and that contract is going to hold up and, and it, it, under scrutiny from a lawyer such as myself, uh, you are entitled to significantly more than a week per year in most cases. Again, the common law factors that we use to determine uh, what a person's entitlements are are age, position, length of employment, and ability to find new employment in the future. Bank can go online, check our, our severance pay calculator, and, uh, and put in those factors. And then, you know, you should definitely probably give us a call at the office and discuss what you're actually entitled to, because one week per year does not sound sufficient to me. Uh, again, severance pay calculator as well. Pocketemploymentlawyer.ca is always a uh, useful tool. I don't think we've had this question before. This one from Taylor says, uh, I'm in a mutually consensual relationship with my colleague at work. Can I be terminated for cause by the company because of this? Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting question from Taylor. Uh, and I think it, it depends on what is the dynamic of your work relationship with the person you're having a consensual relationship with. Uh, even if you're having a consensual relationship with a person, but they are your subordinate, you know, if you have significant power over them at work, it's it's very unlikely to be okay. And I mean, if you're doing that, you know, the best thing you could probably do is be transparent with the company, come forward, tell them about it so that they don't find out, you know, on their own. And they'll just assume that you were hiding it from them at that point and will very likely terminate you for cause. But if the two of you can justify it to the company and show to the company that really this is not, a, you know, that nobody's being taken advantage of here, mm -hmm. uh, that this is truly consensual despite, despite that dynamic of one party having power over the other, you know, that should be enough to say that's not cause in my view. But again, I think this is all contextual. I, I think it's going to come down to the facts specifically in Taylor's case. Uh, and I'm very wary, you know, in situations, as I say, where one person has power over another, even if it's consensual, I'm still very wary of that, you know, and I think that an employer can certainly take it badly. And I can see a court, you know, saying that is cause altogether. Is this something that, um, is this something that could be laid out in some sort of, uh, manual at a workplace about consensual relationships? Yeah, lots of policy. Uh, lots of yeah. companies have policies as they relate to relationships in the workplace, uh, and most of those policies have disclosure requirements, and that's usually what gets to gets them to cause, right? It's not that you've engaged in this consensual relationship per se; it's that you fail to disclose, do it sur uh, surreptitiously, and uh, and you violate the policy, and then they lose trust in usually the manager because they have authority, they have yeah. more trust. Uh, and therefore, the law, you know, their obligations and duties are of a higher standard. Let me uh, get to one more quick email here. we got a couple minutes left, and that would be Lisa. Lisa, thank you so much. Again, help at employmentlawyer.ca is where you go. If I am a salaried employee, am I entitled to overtime? Good question. Great question, and I think I've addressed this question several times here. You know, and I'll uh -huh. say it again. If you're a salaried employee, if you're an hourly employee, if you're a commission employee, I don't care how they pay you. If you're working more than 44 hours in any given any given week, you are entitled to overtime unless you fall into one of the exceptions like being a manager or being an IT professional or being a pool cleaner for whatever reason. 
you know, there are certain exceptions to that rule, but those exceptions do not correlate to the way you are paid. They're, right. They correlate to what your position is. So how is basically, how is overtime calculated for someone who's salaried? You know, it's a salary, uh, an annual salary can be reduced to an hourly wage if you do the math, right? Okay. Figure out what annual salary, take 52 weeks, divide by 40 hours a week or what have you, figure out the hourly rate, and then just multiply that hourly rate by time and a half. That is basically the way to do it. So you do qualify managers, like you said, and others are exempt from that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. there you go. We're pretty much done for uh, another show. You want to reach out to Stan and his team. Don't hesitate to do so. Always uh, always ready for a chat to, to teach you things, right, and help you out. 1-855-821-5900. Again, 1-855-821-5900. Email help at employmentlawyer.ca. The website anytime built just for you. Rock solid, free, anonymous as well pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We'll catch you next time. Employment Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto.